Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, she. Today, I'm talking to Tristan Zimmerman, who you might know from the much acclaimed blog, Molten Sulphur. Much of Tristan's work explores historical content and how it can be adapted to use in RPGs. Today, we're going to be talking to Tristan about uh, their new game, Shanty Hunters. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Tristan. I'm very excited to hear about Shandy Hunters. Uh, would you mind further introducing yourself for our audience? Sure. So, uh, first off, great to be here. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Tristan, he, him. Uh, and if you know me, you probably know me for uh, the Molten Sulfur blog, uh, which has been nominated for a few Ennies. And the, the Molten Sulfur blog presents every week uh, real, real world history or folklore that is interesting and, and worth reading about in its own right, and then talks about how to file the serial numbers off of it and drop it right into the campaign you're already running, right? How to treat real stuff from the real world and real history and real folklore um, and, and treat it as gaming content. Uh, because I genuinely believe that uh, gaming content that is drawn from real stuff um, is richer and more vibrant and that your players really can tell the difference. Yeah. And it can have a like deeper connection to reality. Mm -hmm. um, uh, something that I always like struggled with in, in role-playing games when I first started playing was the fact that you didn't really have, I enjoyed playing in games set in modern settings way more because I had context for what everything that wasn't the 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 fantastical element. Uh, I had context for everything else and how it worked. Whereas in like a fantasy setting, it's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's weird and what's not. Like, I can't make, <laughs> I can't make leaps of logic because I don't have any lived experience in this setting. Whereas when you tell me that like somebody shoots a, a lightning gun at me and I'm standing in the middle of Salisbury, like I know that's weird. <laughs> Yeah, because we're, lightning we're, guns don't exist we're all playing dungeons and dragons we're standing around and the gm's like and it's a city of brass and i'm supposed to be real shocked but like bro i'm playing a frog person like how yeah is... like how how common is brass like yeah um yeah definitely very exciting stuff I've, I've i've done a i actually came across your blog i realized a few weeks ago um when i was searching for some information about some other historical thing and it just returned that result i guess because google was like you like role-playing games yeah. we're gonna push this to the top of the results uh so that was that was fun um so we're gonna get into shanty hunters in a minute but first i want to ask you how you first made the leap from game player or person aware of games into game designer, because obviously you're designing stuff for the blog, but you've also put out a few projects as well. There was some um, one shot, a one shot like trilogy, essentially, mm -hmm. I think it was. Yep. As well as um, so a book of like reference for, people and places from history and how to put them into uh games i think it was it was indeed nice and uh third one that i'm struggling to remember right now <laughs> um so you've jokes on you because you actually got it because i did two collections of 
uh, people, places, and events that are great for filing the serial numbers off of and dropping them into your blog, uh, in, into your campaign. So, so those you got are, it all. So those are essentially like Molten Sulfur, the blog, the, the book. Correct. Basically, right? The, the sort of. Molten Sulfur, the blog, the book before the blog existed. Oh, um, I didn't realize they predated the blog. I just assumed yeah, that yeah. they came after the the books came first um but the the blog has been what's really great about the blog is you can kind of do whatever right it doesn't all need to fit the same format you mm -hmm. know i for example li literally just a few hours ago i was putting the finishing touches on a series of uh npcs drawn from a collection of rumors gathered in 1600s england right and then nice. I'm going to roll into writing something about how to gamify, how to use in your pre-existing campaign, something based on how yellow fever impacted the, the development of colonial empires in the Gulf of Mexico. And yeah, okay. there's no real connection between those two other than, boy, they sure do involve people and, and Brits specifically. Um, mm. So you can't really have both of those things in the same book, but yeah, man, I can do that back to back in the blog. No big deal. Yeah. And I guess also in terms of format, you can do smaller stuff that wouldn't necessarily fit into the book that like the time constraint wouldn't make sense or whatever, or the word you know, count even. You say that. And initially that was part of the logic, but it quickly wound up going the other direction. That's like, mm, this is much too long to be a section in a, in a book that has a bunch of little entries in it. Ah, on the blog yeah. it goes okay i can see that being a thing yeah no that makes sense that's cool so how did you how did you first become interested in that and as a wider point how did what was the first sort of stuff you tried to design what was how did you first make things i know like for me the first thing i tried to make in terms of game design was um i made fighting style merits for new world of darkness which i think now is called chronicles of darkness but Ooh. whatever i made fighting style merits because that was the thing i was interested in and i was like mm, this could be in here and isn't so i mean i definitely made some homebrew garbage for the stuff i was running because that is inherent to being a game master and it's one of the things we love about the hobby but the first thing the first real serious thing i did um I had graduated from college um, and I was going to join the Navy. And I, I spoiler alert, I did join the Navy. The, the story has a happy ending. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Navy kept like putting me on hold, like, oh, we'll get to you when we get to you, man. Like, boy, we'd love to have you, but give us a few more months before, before we, we sit, ship you out. Um, so I was sitting at home in my high school bedroom with nothing to do. Um, bored out of my skull, I said, well, at the very least, you know, I could try to make some money. Um, so I hit up uh, a friend from college. We had talked about doing something like this in the past and said, hey, man, what if we produce a PD, an ebook that's a collection of real people, places and events and how to use them in your fictional campaigns? And he said, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I have a job. You don't, Tristan. So I feel like you'll be able to do more of this than, than I can. Um, but that's that ultimately that foolishness, the, 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 the foolishness of thinking that like, oh, I like role playing games. I could just make some money with role playing games. For those of you listening at home, it doesn't work like that. Um, that is that's kind of what what launched me 
what launched me on this track. Uh, and then I joined the Navy and that all went on the back burner for a long time because I had Navy things to do. Um, and now that I am out of the Navy, things are coming back to the front burner and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Nice. Exciting. Um, yeah. So, uh, shanty hunters obviously, uh, explores the history to a degree of shanty music. Um, but is also this kind of fantastical, uh, narrative of uh collecting songs in spite of malicious spirits and traveling at sea obviously features heavily uh, do you mind telling us more about shanty hunters than that very vague description i just gave oh do i mind i in fact do not mind at all uh shanty hunters is a tabletop role-playing game about collecting magical sea shanties in the year 1880 um you play as sailors and scholars who are obsessed with documenting these beautiful maritime work songs before they are lost. And they're going to be lost because 1880 is, is kind of the tale of the age of commercial sail, as sail is being supplanted by steam. And shanties are an inherently sail-based art form. And so you're playing these characters who are like, oh, this is really important. You know, we got to go spend months at sea listening to the sailors doing their shanties and, and documenting them. But there's a problem, which is that when your characters document a new shanty, the events and imagery in that song come to life aboard your ship. So if you just heard the sailors aboard your ship sing a song about fire, you know, fire down below, fire moving around through the ship, like, okay, you just documented that because you are obsessed. And, you know, that's, that is, that's what your characters would do. But now, now you have to deal with this, this urgent problem. And maybe there's, there's evil fire spirits or some sort of fiery plague, or in some way, the events and imagery of the song are coming to life aboard the ship. And you have to deal with it. You made this problem. You have to, to, to put this problem down uh, before it sinks the ship and drowns all of the innocent crew and passengers that you chose to, uh, to, to, to cause these things to happen to. And uh, it is um, in large part a, a puzzle game as the players are encouraged to take the lyrics of the shanty and really parse them over with a fine tooth comb. Okay, based on these lyrics, what do we think is gonna happen? What can we do? You know, what can, can our characters do? knowing what we think is going to happen in order to prepare. And now that things have started happening, what can we do about it? What, what hidden truths lie in these lyrics? And one, uh, one final little, little detail, uh, I strongly encourage groups to sing the songs at the table, because if you've got your GM who's passing out these, these handouts, these lyrics sheets, because that's kind of the central clues of this session's adventure um yeah man like these are beautiful songs they're wonderful songs everybody sing them together at the table and what's great about shanties and singing them in a group uh is that these are work songs right these are songs that sailors sang to keep them uh in time as they hauled together on lines and did work together this is not ave maria 
right? This is not like, oh, you know, I can't sing very well. Like, yeah, man, these songs were written for people who couldn't sing very well. And, and so get together with your friends. You're going to be playing this game. Sing the songs at the table. Have a great time with it. Get into it. And then deal with these terrible problems that you just created. It also helps that you're going to be singing in a group. And uh, that, uh, that will help cover like your yes. your voice if you're not as confident with it yeah um yeah so i mean that's very exciting i had an idea a very long time ago now for a larp where you uh that was a choir mechanically was a choir battle larp but narratively was about uh pirate ships and stuff running into each other at sea and so you would you would have a sing off essentially to determine the winner of things. I think this is a much better evolution of the idea. Um, that was going to be that was going to require like judges and adjudicators. This is better. Uh, <laughs> also needs fewer people. Also needs fewer people um, and much less pageantry. Uh, so. Uh, I have read a little bit of the book, and so I know that it uses gumshoe uh, mm -hmm. to some degree, which we, you, I mean, you kind of touched on that by talking about it being like a puzzle game and having clues and things like that. Um, but those that aren't familiar with gumshoe, what more can you tell us about how you have adapted that for your purpose? Yeah, so gumshoe is a, uh, a role-playing game system um, designed by uh, Robin D. Laws, and it is hands down, and I can say this because I, I didn't design Core Gumshoe, so I can say this without having to, to, you know, show false modesty. Gumshoe is the best RPG system out there for running mysteries. Full stop. Mysteries and investigations. Um, and for, for folks at home who, who aren't familiar with Gumshoe, the central conceit of the rule set is that in mystery and investigation fiction, it mm. is not interesting when the investigator or investigators fail to find the clue. At no point in a Sherlock Holmes short story does Sherlock Holmes patrol the murder scene and be like, hmm, cigarette ash in the ashtray. I wonder if I know exactly what kind of cigarette that comes from and therefore can know something about the killer. Nope, turns out I don't. I flood the role. I don't actually know anything about this kind of ash. Oh, well, would have been nice to know. That doesn't happen in in outside of role-playing games in, in mysteries because it doesn't generate fun stories. The fun lies not in trying and maybe failing to get clues. The fun is in having the clues and then trying and maybe failing to figure out what happened and what should we do about it. That's where the, the, the chance of failure is thrilling. Um, and so Shanty Hunters is a... Uh, it, it, it doesn't necessarily look like it at first blush, but it is fundamentally an investigative game. But the bulk of the clues are right there in the lyrics, the lyrics that you just sang. Like, those are the clues. Uh, so I wanted to use a rule system that was really built from the ground up around the idea that the players will have access to this knowledge because, yeah, man, you're holding it in your hands right now. Mm. There's another game. I can't remember what it is called. Uh, and it might even be built off Gumshoe, but it had it focused around collecting, um, collecting 
uh, written materials specifically. And it was mechanically, the game had a lot of like, you could need to make handouts and things and books and stuff for your players to read and, and all this. And I wish I could remember more about it. But yeah, that was like a, an intro, a focus of the game. Um, I'm but just I do throw out the possibility that it's Bookhounds of London. Yeah, could be. Could be. Okay. Um, but. The point is, I do really love uh, handouts uh, and things like that when it is when it is possible. It doesn't really fit into my like uh, run style because I, I don't really have the the executive function to do a lot of prep. Uh, I have to be an improviser or else I won't play. Uh, but uh, but I do love it when I'm at the table when those things are there uh, and 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 games that feature that. So I do like this. And I mean, also in terms of prep, like. Finding the lyrics for for a shanty isn't the most hard thing to do, uh, I feel. Particularly given that the book comes with, I believe, 17 uh, shanties specifically selected because they make good adventures, right? Because they have lyrics that lend themselves to adventures. So there you go, uh, 17. It's right there. You've got 17 possible sections there. I'd normally only play like six or 12. So, you know, there you go. That's ample. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So there's another part of the book that really stood out to me when I was reading it, and I wanted to ask you more about this. You have a section right at the beginning of the of the like um, advanced reader sample that you sent me uh, that talks about the fact that, um, one, you need to be aware of where you're playing your game and who might hear the songs you're singing because a lot of these songs have themes that are really... <laughs> Themes uh, that make a lot of sense in 1880, and thank God we don't live in 1880 anymore. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and uh, I think we'll start there, uh, and we'll go through the rest of that section because there's other parts of that that I really am interested in. Um, what uh, what kind of guidance beyond just mentioning that these songs have, you know? some wicked themes um what kind of guidance do you offer people on terms of how to select uh shanties to include and how so, to explore that so for, from a from a safety perspective yeah 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 sorry yeah from a safety perspective so um one is is of course knowing your group and knowing the the the, the circumstances in, in which you are um, but two that I, I definitely uh, strongly encourage uh, in the book um, are Lines and Veils and the X card. Um, and uh, I recommend the X card for one shots. I recommend Lines and Veils for campaigns. Uh, and would it be beneficial to your listeners if I were to go into a little more detail about those two and why they're, they're beneficial for those I think it would be interesting to hear why you selected them. I think most of yeah. the audience will probably be familiar with them, but I would okay. be interested to hear why you chose those tools specifically. So because I think I... I think a lot of people struggle with choosing. I don't I don't know how much people that are just playing role playing games struggle with this, but people that are designing games, I think, often probably are like, "Oh, what safety tools do I need to include?" So hearing how you have selected yours might help people. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so. I selected the X card. X card, real quick, is just an index card in the middle of the table that has an X on it. And at any point, anybody can reach into the center and touch the card. And that means whatever's happen happening stops. We move on from it next. Um, and I selected that for one shots um, for the simple reason that I have a lot of experience using the X card in one shots. So I know it works. 
um, because I have seen it work because um, I have been at tables with people, some of whom are strangers and some of whom are not and seen certain seen material come up that maybe people might not have, have necessarily been super comfortable with, but the mere presence of the X card on the table increases people's abilities to deal with troublesome and difficult stuff because it gives them control because you're no longer out of control because you have the power anytime you want to reach into the center and you've had the GM assure everyone, look, man, like I put this card here. It's here for a reason. And uh, if you touch that card, no questions asked, next scene, full stop. And so I've seen that it helps and I've seen that it works. And I know that it works well with one shots um, because it requires no explanation because one shots are often played at conventions. They're often played with strangers. And the last thing you want to do is sit down at a table and say, hey, guys, my granddaddy was lynched and I don't want to deal with any uh, sea shanties that involve lynching, right? Um, and hanging Johnny is, is one of them in here. It's not about lynching specifically. It's about an executioner, but close enough for government work. And with an X card, you don't have to open up about that. You don't have to, to, to bear your soul to strangers. You just have the X and if you need it, it's there. So strongly recommend X card for one shot play. Now for uh, short campaigns, and I say short, in my opinion, Shanty Hunters, while it is an enormous amount of fun for, for one shots, uh, it really shines for kind of seven session campaigns. Um, once you've done seven sessions, I really think that, that you have you've seen what the game has to offer and you can say, well, that was a lot of fun moving on to the next thing. Um, lines and veils um, are again, real briefly, when at the beginning of, of the campaign in session zero, uh, everybody goes around the table and basically says, look, here's the things I don't want to be in this campaign. Uh, you know, here's the stuff that, that squicks me out. Here's the stuff I don't want to see. And then the GM says, okay, cool. I'm not going to put it in there. That was easy. Um, and all the other players say, okay, yeah, I'm going to make sure that I don't push the plot in that direction. That was easy. Uh, and, and really, it's it's a vehicle for communicating with the people that you're playing with who, let's not forget, are probably your friends, right? We game with our friends. Uh, nobody wants to hurt anybody else. And boy, if they do, you need to get out of that, that group. Um, and I chose Lines and Veils for that because I use Lines and Veils in my home campaigns, um, particularly when I'm gaming with people that I haven't been gaming with for years. Um, and I don't necessarily know, and I definitely don't want to cause anybody any trouble. I don't want to hurt anybody. And lines and veils, again, it's really just uh, an organizational structure for communicating and communicating. Here's the stuff we don't want. And I've seen it work, which is why I recommended it for short campaigns. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, you you touched on... Uh, through that, and we talked about it a little bit before, the fact that some of these songs uh, explore, like, I think a lot of, let me let me rephrase. In the book, you mentioned that this is a game set in the 1880s. These are people that are both, you are playing as people that are both victims and perpetrators of colonialism, that they are agents of colonialism, whether they really understand that or not and whether they and and they benefit from different to different degrees um and you also mentioned that 
the art you've used predominantly comes from features uh, white, what we would recognize as white uh, characters because you didn't want to include um, the unsavory caricatures of uh, of what we would now call people of color um, and and people from marginalized groups because of the because that's the the art of the time that survives at least. Um, I'm interested to know what kind of consultation you've done re regarding that uh, or were able to do because obviously budgets and things. Um, and what kind of sensitivity reading has gone into or less so sensitivity reading and more so, um, I guess, consultation is really more what I'm interested in. Have you liaised with anyone in regards to those themes and like, how have you explored that? I mean, in your book, you mention in the text that I have re read, mm -hmm. you mention the 1880s sailing world was way more diverse than the art that survives as the period depicts and way more diverse than we as modern uh, audiences are. Uh, really engage with and really are aware mm -hmm. of i think like a huge part of that comes down to uh really the engines of colonialism and capitalism and uh and racism of past eras um particularly like the the last century the 20th century um and also into the into today um so i'm interested to hear how you have explored those um, not explored those themes, but how you have attempted to do the the work and make sure that you are portraying it in a way that is, you know, positive. And yeah, does that make sense? It's a very long question. <laughs> um, but but I, I think I, I get where you're you're going after. Um, the the simple answer is working hard and trying to do the best job that I can. Right, like that's. That's not necessarily a very helpful answer because it's very vague, um, but it's a lot of, to use an Australian example, uh, you know, I live over here in the States and uh, am as a consequence, not as intimately familiar with um, Aboriginal Australian struggles uh, as I am with struggles here in the States. And so there is a there is a a section in the book talking about sydney as a port and i definitely wanted to go in and talk about sydney as sydney as an adventure site but also sydney as a colonialist enterprise imposed upon the land and the people because that is relevant right um and so going to uh, going to the resources available through Australian museums and seeing how they talk about things and seeing what language they're using and doing my best to to mimic that uh, that perspective in the book. Um, there is no explicit use of sensitivity readers uh, because I don't have any money for it. Uh, for the exact same reason why the book is uh, illustrated with. Um, with art from the era, right? All the the the, the art because all the that book. all that art is now in public domain, so you can use Correct. it free. Yeah. Um, my of my I, this is my fourth book, so I've had three in the past. Um, of those three, two have lost money, um, and the simple fact is that I 
I had to, to make the decision, right? Do I want to, do I want to work hard and do the best that I can and understand that, you know what, that means there is a chance that I will screw it up in, in, in some places, or do I want to spend thousands of dollars in order to do sensitivity readers? Because if you're going to bring somebody on, you got to pay them an honest day's wage for an honest day's work, right? None of this, none of this, you know, two cents a word nonsense. Yeah. Um, and I opted instead to, to work hard and do the best that I could. Yeah, I think that that is a really honest answer. And I also, I mean, a part of the reason I wanted to bring it up is because you mentioned it in the book. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. I was, I was impressed when I read that section. Obviously, we're two white people. Um, so, you know, others' opinions on this might vary. And I'm acknowledging that uh, at the forefront. But I was impressed that uh, you mentioned essentially the shortcomings of, of your work uh, in the book. You're like, yeah, I'm using public domain art. So I either have to, I either have to include uh, as few racist depictions as possible, or if I want to include a lot of diverse imagery in terms of uh, people and representation, I'm going to have to include a lot of really bad art and really bad caricatures. And I think that I don't know what the right call was, but I definitely think that it was, uh, I respected that you were upfront about the decisions that you made um, and your desire to like, cause it says in, in the text, as we mentioned a minute ago, that the time period was more diverse than the art uh, portrays. And that is because the, the time period exists in reality and the art does not. Uh, the art exists in the, the minds of the people that would, were, were creating it and commissioning it and publishing it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I did my level best in the text to as accurately reflect the, the diversity and, and Jesus and the fundamental humanity of all the people involved being a sailor in the year 1880 was awful i mean everything about it is awful and 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 it's it's easy to nostalgicize it i'm sure that's a word uh it's easy to 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 look at it all through like oh wasn't this grand um and sure from a certain extent it is grand because the ocean is grand and ships are incredible pieces of technology and they're beautiful and sailors to this day are are incredible human people and are are victims as much as they are perpetrators and you just you have to talk about all that and you have to say it um and you have to talk about the diversity and you have to portray it in the text as, as accurately as you can and know that sometimes you'll screw up and, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I definitely, uh, yeah. I think that it, it was a topic that was worth devoting some time to um, because obviously it's a big part of how we now look at that time period. Uh, for example, in Australia, the government recently wasted a bunch, in my opinion, wasted a bunch of money building, I don't know if they were building or retrofitting a replica of the Endeavour, uh, which is uh, uh, James Cook's ship that uh, discovered, didn't discover shit, um, Australia, um, 
and they were going to sail it. They were they had funded for 2020. Thank God, uh, that didn't go ahead. Um, they had funded a trip around Australia to commemorate uh, the the anniversary or some shit of of Captain Cook's voyage, and like so many um, indigenous organisations around Australia were like, no, fuck this. And, like, activist organisations were like, we are going to blockade the port when that ship tries to come in here. Oh, um, my goodness. Just lots and lots of organisations. And it, it ended up not going, going ahead because of the fact that, not sadly, not really because of the protests, but because of the COVID outbreak. Um, so they weren't able to sail this stupid boat around. Uh, but like, like th- those are the kinds of things. And, you know, we talk about colonization and stuff because of the fact that um, we've seen, like, we've seen lots of people trying to remove statues that glorify colonizers uh, lately. And the, the efforts that the police state will go to, to, to prevent that, like in Australia, they had like armed guards defending Cook statue in the CBD in Sydney and things like that. And some other dudes. Um, yeah. And just like wasting so much money. And I could just remove a shitty statue. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is, it is a thing that is in the, in the consciousness right now, right? Like in the zeitgeist of, mm-hmm. and thinking about the, the colonials next week. So I think it, it was worth devoting some time to. And, um, and I, I, I'd also just like to mention that Shanty Hunters, <sighs> Shanty Hunters to a certain extent is not a book about, colonialism except to a certain extent it unambiguously is right um and the book is not a polemic because i genuinely don't believe that my readers are here for a polemic i genuinely believe that they are they're here for 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 something else but it is it is a theme that i tried to have pervade the work throughout right something that that was that that's that is that i attempted to make present in the marrow of the work and um and and time will tell whether i succeeded in that um but again it, this is this is not a book that is going to scream at you about x y and z instead this is a book that is going to do its level best to present things from a particular intentionally chosen perspective yeah i think as well like coming off of that it's interesting to me that essentially what your main character your your player characters are doing this recording of this of these songs it speaks to a lot of the conservation we see in in um from anthropologists and stuff now regarding oral traditions and things like Mm -hmm. that where it's like we understand that you your your culture doesn't want to record these things historically and uh and such but if they are to survive into the future we need to make uh make recordings and so there's like this balance between respectfully um being respectful to to these cultures and also recording this information so that it can be be passed on and so that it can survive and i don't i don't really know the intentionality of that theme, but it was something that I found interesting is that you're essentially engaging in this act of, um, of, of cultural pres- preservation. Yeah. Of cultural preservation that we now see as actually trying to like in the modern day, that stuff is happening as a response to colonialism. Why are these oral, oral traditions, 
um, under threat, it's because of, of the colonialism. And similarly here, you, the drive for, for the, for capitalism to have, uh, you know, better, faster, more reliable vessels means that this whole culture that it has existed for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, depending on how you want to talk about sailors and, and stuff, um, this whole culture is going to disappear. And it's like, in a way, it's a very multinational culture because you have all these, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the, more the, more the, um, more the expert than I, as much as we are experts, um, you have this blending of, of cultures. How much does the game explore that aspect? Cause I know you've got, I mean, you mentioned you've got Sydney, you've got all the, you've got Algiers as a port, um, Yokohama. I was surprised to see Yokohama in there. Cause I know that from, uh, from they built a Gundam statue there. That's the other reason I know Yokohama. <laughs> I see. They built it right there on the water. The new Gundam statue, the one that walks. Yeah, this, I mean, 1880, particularly 1880 with a maritime focus, um, is a is a rapidly globalizing world, right? And in these, these crews, uh, in these sailing crews, you absolutely had people from across the globe working alongside one another and rubbing elbows. And that is, is definitely something that I try to get across in the text and encourage people to play, um, you know, melee sailors and Bengalese, uh, or excuse me, Bengali uh, Lascars and, and Chinese sailors and, and crew sailors, KRU from West Africa and, and freedmen from the American South and, uh, and 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 black sailors from the Caribbean, and in addition to you know every group, I'm sure is going to have people saying you know oh I'm from a long family of New Bedford, Connecticut whalers, and you know I'm I'm uh, I'm a Dutchman, and you know my character centers around my character centers around my silly Scottish accent because I'm playing a Scot, and but really it's it's all corners of the globe because. Uh, because ultimately what these sailing ships needed more than anything um, was skilled, cheap labor. And when you need skilled, cheap labor, all of a sudden you are going to draw from a lot more, from a lot more places than just like, oh, well, this is a, a proper British ship. And so we're only going to have, you know, proper British sailors aboard her. Yeah. Also helps that in 1880 Britain in terms, it was quite large. There's a yes, lot of Britain. Yes. There's a lot of Britain, and it wasn't just in the British Isles. Yes, um, and then you you mentioned the the ports. So I want to say, yeah, I, have... I was going to ask what are what are some of the most exciting ports? But yeah, how many are there included? So uh, of course, it's very helpful that this is an audio medium. So you know, folks at home can't see that I'm holding up to the camera. Oh, it's uh, a very the, lovely book. The in green proof. and green and black. Yes, yes, it's beautiful. We will describe it in intricate detail, and you can imagine it in your mind's it's, eye. It's not, it's not quite gold lettering, but it evokes gold. Yeah. Um, 20, 20 ports is is how many ports are in here. Um, and what, were, what were some of your most favorite to research and write? Ooh, okay. And I know that's um, like choosing a favorite child, but as, a, as an uncle to many, uh, many uh, sisters' children's and brothers' children's. Uh, I have favorites because they're not my kids. 
<laughs> so you can say it. Um, Freetown, Sierra Leone, um, oh, fuck yeah. was was fascinating uh, to research because Freetown at the time was, uh, boy, very much part of the British Empire. This is a British colonial town. It is it is here at the mouth of the river, so that you know it is a trading port to trade with uh, the the folks upstream. But it was an overwhelmingly black town where. It was it was a melting pot of black British subjects from across the empire um, who like they, there was a thriving black middle class. There was a thriving black upper class. Even most of the colonial administrators were black. Um, and, you know, absolutely fascinating piece to, to research. Um, see here some other ones that were a lot of fun. Um uh fiji fiji was a delight oh um, yeah uh heck heck fiji's when, uh, like very like interesting uh cultural uh melting pot because you've got like from memory it's been a it's while the crossroads of of the pacific yeah yeah right like there's a i think now there's like a hindu community and stuff in pretty large from memory i'm not 100 percent. it's been a while <laughs> but yeah anyway a very very like interesting and diverse place uh, in terms of like what you said, that whole crossroads of the Pacific thing. Um, one of the 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 sources that uh, was a lot of fun to pull from while while writing up the port section, and the port section, by the way, uh, serves as as something of the campaign setting, right? Like this is how I'm presenting the year 1880 and the world of the year 1880 is by talking about ports because that's the part of ports and ships are the part of the year 1880 that you will interact with. In shanty hunters, ports, ships, and sailors, and of course, all get talked about. Um, and you know, you can you can pull from period appropriate almanacs to you know, ah, yes, here are the major imports and exports from each port, and I did that. And you can pull from the history books in order to make sure that you're getting your dates right and your you know broad historical themes right, and I did that too. Um, or I pulled from. I hesitate to say I got everything right from, but uh, I definitely pulled from and did that too. But to get the no, really, like you are standing here, right? You are standing in this in this port. What is it like? What is it like to stand in Kingston, Jamaica in the year 1880? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it look like? A really wonderful source that I drew upon for this book um, was a book published after a round-the-world cruise made by a small flotilla of British warships uh, that included among its officers uh, two of the sons of Queen Victoria, uh, including the crown prince, who were both ensigns, they were both junior officers in the Royal Navy in this flotilla, and this round-the-world cruise was a showing-the-flag thing, it was a diplomatic thing, and the boys, boys, the young men, kept diligent, you know, diaries and notebooks. And afterwards, it was all dressed up and, and put out as a multi-volume publication. And and it's a, it's a font of delightful stories about, you know, hey, man, here I am. I'm standing here in Yokohama. Boy, this is this is sure a little different from Westminster, huh? Okay. All right. Um, and, and, you know, it's full of those lived details uh, that were so much fun. Um, one, in, including uh, that the crown prince, while he was in Yokohama, tattoos were 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 not known, right? Like not known, no, wrong word. Tattoos were not really a thing in the Western world at the time. Um, 
but tattoos were a huge thing in Japan, except the Emperor Meiji, in the process of westernizing Japan, had recently outlawed tattooing. So for tattoo artists who wanted to continue to work their trade, they moved to Yokohama, which was the only open port. It was the only port that, that foreign ships could dock in. And so it had foreign sailors in it. And you could tattoo those guys without running afoul of the emperor. So Yokohama was like a center of the tattoo arts. And this crown prince, while he is visiting the imperial court, the emperor summons a, a renowned tattoo artist up from the port and says, would you like a tattoo? And the crown prince says, heck yeah, I want a tattoo. Give me a full sleeve tiger on one arm. Give me a full sleeve dragon on the other arm. One of them's representing the West and one of them's representing the East. And it's going to be badass. We have no photographs of it because he wore long sleeves for the rest of his life. So this we, man, do, this, how much confirmation do we have that it definitely happened? So it definitely happened. This is not our only source of it. And he just wore long sleeves for the rest of his life. So the King of England was walking around sporting two full sleeve tattoos that he got in Japan on his round the world cruise. And we have no photographs of it. That'd be, that would be a great anime character. That's, that's an episode of Samurai Shampoo right there, because that's the kind of weird shit they do in the show. Like the baseball episode. Um, okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah, all right. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so, that's a very, very cool source. It's also a white source. It is white as white gets. How difficult was it to find other sources? I mean, imagine very, because you're also going to be restricted to English. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested to know how, mu how much were you able to draw on sources that were not... European princes. <laughs> so for not European princes specifically, boy, real easy to find. Um, for other non-white sources, um, I wasn't. Um, I was restricted, with the exception of the sources that I used in um, to, to pull out for specific nautical flavor, right? So uh, another great example is um, Two Years Before the Mast, uh, which is a, another I think great I've heard source of that of, before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's it is a, a classic of American literature, but it, it's an autobiography or memoir or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so all of my, my primary sources that I used for the color and the little bits of lived experience are white and Western, full stop. Um, no, no two ways around it. Um, and then for the rest of it, it is secondary sources. And all I can do is cross my fingers that the actual professional historians that I am pulling from uh, were doing good jobs because I am not a professional historian. And that is an absolute cop-out response. And I hate it when people say that, right? Because that doesn't excuse you, right? If you're putting out a piece, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you listen to history podcasting or whatever, but that is that is a distressingly common answer. Like they'll say something and then they'll be like, no, I'm not a historian, of course. So, you know, take all this with a grain of salt. Like, then why are you buddy, doing it? Yeah. Like if you're not willing to stand behind your words, then don't say your words. Um, so this is not me trying to not stand behind my words. I, you know, did my job to the, the, the best of my ability. And uh, if I get it wrong, I hope that somebody tells me about it. Yeah, fair. Uh, what is uh, something 
What's something about the game that you don't normally get to talk about? Ooh, that I don't normally get to talk about. Because I feel like people probably ask you a lot about like, oh, how do you build characters? What is, what's the what's mm. the skills and mechanics? How do you do all that? I assume that's going to be, that you can find that out by reading the book. I'm here to learn <laughs> about the stuff we can't find out by reading the book. Stuff that we might miss. One thing that I don't get asked about very much is um, how to color your experiences, right? How to ensure that when everybody sits down to play a game of Shanty Hunters, that it doesn't feel like playing any other role-playing game, right? Um, that that this is this has a real distinct setting. Um, that this has a um, that this is that that this should have its own. F- um, and <laughs> the answer is uh, once again, I did my level best. Um, which is kind of a, a recurring theme for this this episode. Um, but I did my level best uh, in the book, and in particular in in the chapter about ships in the sea and and about sailors. Um, I did my best to provide you, you the reader, um, lots of details that you don't need. Right? You don't need these details. You don't need to know what Force 7 is on the Beaufort wind scale. That's ridiculous. Imagine if you had to know that to run a role-playing game. God, that'd be a terrible role-playing game, and, and you wouldn't want to play it, and you shouldn't want to play it. This is, I, this I, is the continuum of sea shanty RPGs. You have to have been a sailor in the 1880s in order to play it. <laughs> um, but things like, hey... What what is the experience of being at sea in these different wind states and in these different sea states? Things like that are in the book specifically so that you can pull out just the details you need for this the session you're going to run tonight and evoke that strong sense of place and evoke that strong sense of time. Um, because that's one of the things I love about historical gaming, right? I, Outside of the stuff I publish, you'll be shocked to learn that I run a lot of RPGs set in historical times. And I play a lot of RPGs set in various historical epochs. I can tell by your expression, you're shocked, shocked. I'm um, so shocked. And, and part of the fun, part of the joy of it is evoking that sense of place and evoking that sense of time and throwing in just a, a little sprinkling of little details that kind of make make the players go like oh yeah we're we're here we're here in this place we're here in this time yeah that's really interesting i've uh, so a lot of my published work is very short so i don't have a lot of time to devote to building setting uh and so i often will just try to as much as possible scatter in little phrases and things to try and evoke setting um when i wrote a post-apocalyptic mad max game i tried to write as much of the text as possible in the voice of the game so that like the voice of reading the mechanics of the reading the book for that reads very differently to like reading my other work that are in like different setting like it's very like what would what would somebody what would somebody who grew up hearing stories about Turbo Camelot and Arthur Victorious, how would they describe a role-playing game? <laughs> someone who, someone who, who, who breathes gasoline, how would they describe a role-playing game? 
Um, and so it's interesting to t- talk about the different ways of trying to invoke that state of feeling connected to the world you're playing in. Um, I think we're almost out of time, but I did want to quickly touch on, you mentioned that you're in the Navy. I assume that that meant you were a sailor. I assume there's I, I jobs in the Navy that aren't sailing. <laughs> there are such jobs. I did not have them. Um, so I, when pilot. I was- you could be a pilot, but then they'll send you out to an aircraft carrier and you'll, you boy, you'll get a lot of sea time, even if you're in the, the sky over it. Um, but uh, no, I, uh, I, while I was in the Navy, um, I circumnavigated the globe. Uh, I crossed the line off Somalia. Uh, I got to do and see a lot of things that were, were really incredible and that I'm really proud of. Um, I, uh, and, and even before I was in the Navy, right? I come from a sailing family. I went to sea for the first time uh, before I was one year old. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the maritime experience is something that is, is very dear to me. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that this book could be among a boy. It's, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure that one of the things that it was, was a love letter, uh, to the maritime experience. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a great place to sort of round things off. Although I do have one last question. Uh, how many of the ports in the book have you been to? Ooh, okay. Let me pull back up the port list. Um, if we are restricting it to been to, I have been to i have visited only two i sailed past singapore um i was i was on watch deep in the bowels of the ship doing something that did not let you look outside right as we were passing singapore and i turned to to my number two and i was like man you have the watch for a minute i will be right back uh, and I, I ran topside just so I could see Singapore as she went sailing past. Uh, that, that's as close as I've been to that. Uh, other than that, um, I did not. Uh, I did not so much pull from my own lived experience there. Right, like, um, <laughs> boy, not least because the uh, the the port that I have been to the most um, was not a going concern, uh, and that that is Manama, Bahrain. Um, and, I don't even know uh, where Bahrain is. I've heard the word before, the name before. Bahrain is a teeny tiny little island, really more of a sandbar than anything else, in the Arabian Gulf, also called the Persian Gulf, uh, right off the coast of Saudi Arabia. Um, is it and, one of those sandbars that they dredged to turn into a military base? Uh, so you are probably thinking there of something a little more Emirati than than Bahrain. Though Bahrain has no shortage of dredging. In fact, I saw. Uh, uh, well, okay, no, I was about to to say something witty, but then I realized it wasn't true. So never mind. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to us uh, and sharing your experience about it, and also for like opening up about the um, the 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 racism and colonialism portion of like how of and how that touches on your book and how that might have shaped it because I realized that was probably a difficult conversation to have. Honestly, um, uh, thank you, thank you so much for asking those questions, right? Because. For the most part, folks have been 
reluctant to ask those questions. And, and I get why, right? Like they are hard questions. They're hard questions to answer. They can't be easy questions to ask. And, and they're hard questions to answer because they are the weakest part of this book, right? And this is a book that I love. I poured so much of myself into it. I'm so proud of it. And to have to spend, I mean, we probably spent 30 minutes on yeah. what is unambiguously the, the weakest part of the book uh, is, is not easy but it's a conversation that needs to happen, right? It needs to be said. It needs to be aired. Uh, so thank you for Look, asking those questions. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do when people ask me questions about how, uh, when it finally publishes, how Live, Love, Die ex uh, engages with the military-industrial complex and colonialism <laughs> and imperialism, because I'm going to have to be like, ah, it engages with it in a lot of the ways that fiction does, which is to say, poorly <laughs> and kind of painting it as both heroic and not heroic at the same time um so yeah it's gonna be difficult questions all around uh thank you so much uh for for chatting about that and uh where can people find out more about you and more and follow the project online um so uh you can find out more and actually uh, <laughs> i'm putting in the boops to alert you during editing <laughs> So you can find out more about the project by visiting the Kickstarter page, which I would strongly encourage you to do, where you can learn more about it and buy the book. Uh, and that link will be in the show notes. Um, if you are interested in the Molten Sulfur blog, uh, it indicates that you have phenomenal taste in your gaming content. Uh, and you can find that at ModenSulfur.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at ModenSulfur, and I'm on Facebook. You can find it by searching for Molten Sulfur blog or Molten Sulfur Press. Um, or just go to Google and type in molten sulfur and RPG or historical or some keyword like that. If I yeah, definitely, the words, definitely add the RPG part because otherwise it's not going to come up. <laughs> if I just say the words molten sulfur often enough, you, the audience, you will remember the branding molten sulfur, molten sulfur. But go to Kickstarter, check out the book. It's amazing. You'll love it. Yeah, fantastic. I cannot wait uh, to uh, to see the finished product uh thank you so much for sharing everything if you enjoyed this interview and you want to hear uh other interviews with other game designers we have a whole bunch of those including ones with australian game designers and more american designers and designers from all around the world uh and even the interviews with editors and illustrators uh but for now uh farewell from the past i'm ray